Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Oh, Lord Jesus, we long to be taught by you this morning. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them, the psalmist says. Lord, bring us that delight and that freedom that the word of God brings wherever it goes. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You survived the snow. Um, my name's Scott. If you're here and I've never met you, if you're watching and I've never met you, my name's Scott, and uh, I'm the pastor at Christ Church. This morning, I'm just going to give you the big idea of what I want to bring out of these rich texts. I don't know if you heard all these weaving themes through those four passages we just read about the Word of God and the prophecy of God and false teaching and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so here's the big idea, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. The big idea is this. It's the sermon title. Teaching is spiritual warfare. Teaching is spiritual warfare. Holy Scripture proposes that the fundamental battle of light and dark in this world, both on a physical and a spiritual level, is a battle between what is true and what is a lie. This is the battle of the world, and it's the battle of your life. And it's a consequential battle between truth and falsehood. Truth brings physical and spiritual and generational and eternal blessing. Falsehood brings the opposite. And so teaching in any form is engaging in that battle, and especially when it involves opening up the Word of God and teaching it. Every time the Word of God is opened up and taught, whether it's from a pulpit or it's at a restaurant with friends or a small group or at your child's bedside, it's warfare. It's an offensive against the darkness which would seek to sow lies. So this comes right out of Mark 1 in that passage that Emily read, and we're going to summarize the story quickly, the rest of our time unpacking it. And I pray that by the end of this, your imagination, in your imagination, the stakes of teaching would be raised and that you would be drawn to Jesus more profoundly as the teacher with authority. So here we go. What happens in this story is pretty simple. Um, like we're doing right now, Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. I don't know if he had to shovel his way out of a driveway uh, to get to the, the synagogue in, in Capernaum. That was a joke. Thank you. That was really funny. Um, and then he gets there, and he basically assumes the role of a guest preacher, uh, a guest rabbi. So I don't know if he was on the bulletin, but he gets there, and he starts teaching. The first thing that happens when he starts teaching is that we see really clearly that people were astonished at his teaching. They had never heard anyone speak like Jesus before. And the thing that the people say in the synagogue, their reaction to Jesus' teaching, is the same thing that people would say a lot as people encountered his teaching, and that is that he taught with what? Authority. He didn't appeal to authority. Like other books or philosophers or rabbinical traditions of interpretation, he was his own authority. Can you imagine somebody getting up in the middle of a, an academic university classroom and not appealing to anything and just saying, regardless of tradition, 
this is true. You would be like, whoa, who is this? And there was something about Jesus' words as people were listening to him that felt ancient and alive, almost like just by the words being spoken, they would do stuff. They would make stuff happen. And lo and behold, something happens as he's teaching. As he's teaching, an unclean spirit manifests itself. Jesus' teaching exposes it. And then there's this classic sheriff bandit moment that Jesus has with the demon, which he has a lot of these in the Gospels. And of course, Jesus wins, and he roots out the demon, and he casts it out. And the story ends with people being astonished at what? His teaching. They were like, what? What just, you know, we've never had a guest preacher like that. What just happened? That's the story. And there's a lot going on in here, but I hope you can see it's a teaching battle. There's a war with words that happens in this story. And in order to unpack it, I want to focus on what it reveals to us kind of about both sides of this battle, evil on the one hand and then Jesus on the other. And I actually gave you a very fancy sermon outline page to fill stuff in on, okay? So if you're a, if you're a note taker and a, a blank filler, you can head there. It looks kind of intense. So you might be like, oh my gosh, there's like eight blanks. And I chuckled to myself as I was preparing this that eventually these are going to get too complicated to be helpful. It's going to be like, okay, point one's here, put point two on an XY axis, divide one by three, and you get point four. Hopefully this isn't confusing. It'll be mirror images of each other at the end, okay? So it's there. What does this story teach us about evil and about Jesus? Number one, top left blank. We're going to start by what it teaches us about the nature of evil. It's rooted in false teaching. You can put false teaching in your top left blank. Because the unclean spirit in this story was exposed by Jesus' teaching, we are to infer that it had come to happily roost in a context of false teaching. We don't know exactly what people were teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, but we do know that it was very different than what Jesus taught. And that whatever it was, it gave license to and space for a demon. And this brings us to the profound biblical truth that evil is always tied to falsehood. Always. Spiritual darkness, whether it is demonic or just sin or bad, is always connected to untruth. Okay, now for those of you who may be visiting or new to Christianity, or you're watching and you're new to Christianity, and all this talk about unclean spirits and falsehood and everything is like, whoa, this is super weird and intense. Uh, I totally get it. Hang in there with me. To understand this, we actually want to go back to the way that the Bible teaches us to see the world. So hang in with me. We're going to go on a little journey through Scripture here. The Bible teaches us that the world is both physical and spiritual. Our world is not just material populated by human beings. It's also spiritual. There's a spiritual world populated by spiritual beings. And even though that might sound crazy, Christians have literally confessed this for thousands of years. We even are going to say it in the creed. We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is... Boom! Matthew knows it. Like a hundred gospel bucks for Matthew in the third row. Seen and unseen, we say in the creed. If you want to know what gospel bucks is, come ask me afterwards. Um, 
So we live in, there's a seen and unseen world, and we, brothers and sisters, live at the intersection of the seen and unseen. And indeed, Jesus and the church are the intersection between the seen and unseen. It's awesome. But what matters for us now is that these two worlds, the seen world and the unseen world, both come from one essential building block, from one essential element, and that is God's word. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth by speaking. So that means our, wor- our world, this is a hard to say, is worded. We live in a worded world. Snow, trees, your body, even angels and demons come from the speech of God, his word. Here's an analogy if you're like, whoa, you lost me, that can be helpful to understand. I'm not a computer guy. I studied music, literature, and theology, okay? So when I do science or math or computer analogies, I'm out of my league. However, I talked to Harrison, who's a coder at Epic, and he confirmed that this is true. That the fundamental building block of software and computing are zeros and ones, right? I'm getting some thumbs up. All zeros and ones in binary computing, at least. That's all it is. It's patterns of zeros and ones. You change a zero there or a one there, and the computing will change. Am I on track? That's pretty amazing. Okay, use that as analogy. The zeros and the ones of the seen and unseen world is the word of God. Deeper than cells, deeper than protons and electrons, and this isn't against science. If it's, there's no battle between science and faith here. It's just deeper. Creation fundamentally is coded in God's wisdom. Here's some scripture to back up what I'm saying. Psalm 33 says this, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Stars come from breath. How cool is that? Psalm 19, well, I should say, Psalm 33 goes on to say, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Teen adds to this by saying that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So the world is warded. The zeros and ones of the universe is God's wisdom. And the great claim of the New Testament is that Jesus is that word. Capital W. It's almost like he is the code of the universe is literally what John 1 is saying. Colossians 1 verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, here's the seen and unseen, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, so there's beings, whether it's humans, angels, demons, whatever, all things were created through him and for him. So there's a fundamental connection between God's word and everything. Are you guys still with me? That was a lot. But there's a connection, okay? And that brings us to this point. If all of that is true, it shouldn't be a surprise what brought about the fall of creation. And what was that? Lies. Deception. The serpent in Genesis 3 doesn't mess things up with a sword or a bomb or a gun. He does it with a lie. Did God really say is the first thing that he says. 
And so we see all the way back to the very beginning, the enemy wants to corrupt and destroy God's creation by sowing falsehood. To go back to our coding analogy, falsehood is like a virus in a computer. The enemy tries to get in and change a zero to a one here, a one to a zero there, mess up the pattern a little bit in order to corrupt the creation. And so we, got, we call God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus himself calls the devil the father of lies. So the evil and demonic and any type of spiritual darkness will always be connected to untruth, to falsehood. Are you guys tracking with me still? Okay. Brothers and sisters, this is why it feels confusing to be a human. This is why sifting through headlines is hard. This is why figuring out what is true about who you are is hard. It's why there's no consensus amongst humans. We live in this beautiful world that is worded, that's created in God's beautiful wisdom, and yet we constantly feel and sometimes and often are complicit in the oppression of the enemy that would seek to twist and deceive. So that's the first thing we see. Evil is rooted in false teaching. Here's the second, and I'm going to give you the two blanks in number two on your left side. Second thing we learn about evil in this story is that it's hidden, put that in your first blank, and enmeshed. Hidden and enmeshed. The unclean spirit has come to roost in the synagogue. Whoa. And we're not told this explicitly, but we're safe to assume that people didn't know it was there before. It was hidden and most likely had intertwined itself like a parasite into the true teaching of the Torah that should have been happening there on a regular basis. And so we see that spiritual darkness thrives in secrecy and by intertwining itself with things that are true. Um, to just come out and oppose God and like his wisdom would be too obvious. So just a, just a little change of a zero here, little change of a one there. And half-truths and impartial doctrines are just as consequential as wrong ones. All the great heresies of the church, this is a fun thing to do sometime. What are the big, most influential heresies in the history of the church? If you're new to Christianity, a heresy is like, a, like that is a wrong teaching. Like, Jesus saves you, and that's great, but you just have to do this as well to get to heaven. Um, God is totally God, or Jesus is totally God, and he's amazing, but he wasn't fully human in the way that we're human. And people are like, no, that doesn't sound right. That's mostly the pattern, but there's a zero and a one-off, and those are way destructive to the church. So evil is hidden. It's enmeshed. It's how it thrives. Finally, here's your last, last uh, blank for the evil bit. It enslaves it enslaves. False teaching and the evil and darkness that accompanies it isn't just a wrong answer. Like, oh man, I missed that question on the theology standardized test. Should have gotten that right on the ACT. Rather, as a virus, it darkens and destroys and enslaves. False teaching is more binding than actual chains. People stay in cults not because they're physically constrained, right? But because they're deceived. And that's way worse. 
It's way easier to care for someone who is physically suffering than it is to care for someone. And the same is true of yourself. Falsehood corrupts your self-understanding, your body, your relationships, your church, your family, your nation, and that is the enemy's intention. There's one time that Jesus is talking to some really smart religious guys who are very wise, and he says this to them, abide in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they respond to him by basically saying, we're not slaves, who are you talking to? And Jesus says, oh yes, you are. And that's actually in John 8 when he says, your father is the father of lies and you do everything you hear from him. So John 8 is an amazing example of Jesus tying all the stuff we're talking about together. Falsehood, slavery, the demonic power of the devil. And before we transition to the rock and roll good news of this passage, because it is amazing, we have to reckon with the bad news of this. None of us, by ourselves, have the wisdom or the power to break the bonds of deception. Let me say that again. None of us, by ourselves, have the wisdom or the power to break the bonds of deception. We've all been enslaved by falsehood in our own way. This is the point where you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, I wish that person could hear this because they are so deceived. But the truth is, all of us have been deceived. None of us can sift through the truth and untruth in this world by, by ourselves. We cannot reason out of it. The false gospel of intellectualism and the academy is that if you get smart enough, you can figure your way out of all this and know what's right. But Jesus would disagree. The Bible even says that left to ourselves, it's hard to sift through what's true about us. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Even yourself. So we're all caught in the firefight of this battle of truth and lies. We're complicit in it and left to ourselves, we're doomed. That should fill us with a right and proper terror that we can be deceived in this world. And if we're not terrified of this, I'm just not being clear enough. This is bad news before it gets to be good news. So what do we do? What do we need if all this is true? If, if this is that important, what do we do? We need someone who knows right from wrong. We need someone who, if you will, knows the code, who can expose the virus. We need a teacher. We need a teacher with authority. And you know where I'm going. We need the man in this passage, amen? We need Jesus. So here's the first thing that defines Jesus' ministry. Now we're on the right side of your sermon page. Top blank. It's rooted in true teaching. Jesus' ministry is rooted in and founded upon true teaching. Jesus is the word of God who comes to teach the word of God. He's come to straighten out what the devil has made confusing and crooked through lies. Hear what Jesus says. Abide in my word and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus doesn't cast out the demon in the synagogue by hocus pocus, okay? Uh, he didn't go to Hogwarts. He doesn't spin a hammer like Thor to conjure up some divine power. This is really important. 
What is Jesus' weapon against the dark arts in this passage? Teaching. Just correctly teaching what is true. That passage that Ellen read, which some of you might have been like, whoa, that's bizarre, in 2 Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness and he's hidden, which is all very connected to what we're talking about. But one day it says Jesus is going to come back and slay the man of lawlessness. How is he going to do that? By the breath of his mouth. In Ephesians, it talks about the armor of the word of God, which is all for defense against the deceptions and the attacks of the enemy. But there's one offensive weapon. There's one thing that we have to fight with. And what is that? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the book of Revelation, to use the, continue the sword analogy, when Jesus comes back to settle all the scores, he opens up his mouth and a sword comes out of his mouth, which I grant you that's a really weird image, but it's an apocalyptic, poetic image to teach us that Jesus has come to do battle and he does battle with his words, with his truth. And what does his teaching do? Here's your next two blanks. It exposes and divides. Where falsehood and the demonic thrives on being hidden and enmeshed, Jesus' teaching exposes what is hidden, and it divides right from wrong where it has become intertwined and enmeshed together. This is Mark 1. Jesus shows up. There's this synagogue that was in a bad way. He teaches. Boom. Boom. Something's exposed. And this is what it feels like when we come under Jesus' teaching. Oh my gosh, we see so many things we hadn't even seen before in our own life, in the world. He shines a spotlight on it. The Bible talks about the word of God like a sharp double-edged sword that can cut and separate. It's so beautiful. But in Mark 1, Jesus doesn't just expose it, he casts it out, right? He basically, uh, when the demon starts talking back to him, he says, what he says, be silent, is be muzzled in Greek. It's like, shut up and get out of here, he basically says to it. So here's your last blank for Jesus' ministry, bottom right. Jesus' ministry in true teaching liberates. Where darkness enslaves Jesus' truth and his ministry liberates what has been captive. Abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the bad news is that none of us by ourselves can navigate the deceit and truth by ourselves, and that we are all captive to it, the gospel is that when we were slaves, when we were helpless and complicit in the spreading of falsehood, Jesus comes as a teacher and he stepped inside the synagogue and he began a ministry of liberation. And what he did in the synagogue in Mark 1, brothers and sisters, you need to hear, is what he does in your life today. It's the same exact ministry. The devil's lies are powerless before the word of God and before Jesus, who is teacher. Falsehood has woven itself into this world in a horrific way, but it's not going to win. Jesus will expose all of it. Hallelujah. So if you look at your, if you have been taking notes, you can see their mirror images of each other. 
Evil's rooted in false teaching. It's hidden and enmeshed and it enslaves. Jesus' ministry, what he's doing even today, is rooted in true teaching. It exposes and divides and it liberates. This is the picture we see in Mark 1, and this is what we still experience today, like I just said. Um, and I need to say, when it comes to the demonic and spiritual warfare, you know, there's ditches here. You can get off track by thinking demons and angels don't exist at all, or that they're behind everything and they're everywhere. But you need to know that what happens in this passage, in the synagogue, is happening all over the world. It's even happening in the Midwest. I personally have experienced it in Madison, Wisconsin. And regardless of whether or not there's an unclean spirit involved, like in this passage, every single one of us right now is engaged in a battle between what is true and what is not. That has real connections to the seen and unseen world and has real consequences and blessings. And every single one of us, I hope this is clear in this passage and in Mark 1, needs Jesus gets Jesus. He's come to offer himself to us. And as we are taught by the Lord, we become teachers. So teaching is spiritual warfare. That's the big idea for this morning. We kind of end where we began. This is why the church, by the way, revolves around teaching, around the teaching ministry of Jesus. If you're new to Christianity, um, or, you know, you're watching and you're interested in Christianity, you might have wondered, like, man, these people, they just, Christians read so much of the Bible. It's like, can't we just read a little bit less and then they talk about it and then they study it and then they pray about it and then they go on retreats and they do the same thing. They just, more of it. It's just like constant teaching. But this is why. The Mark 1 ministry of Jesus is alive in the church and Jesus has handed his sword, his, his word to the church to continue ministry. So it will always revolve around teaching because it's a matter of life and death. Amen? Amen? That's why we love it. Sometimes teaching in the church may feel charged or divisive. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. There are some moments where all of a sudden it feels like the air leaves the room when there's a teaching that's happening. And trust me, I understand how from being on both sides of the pulpit, it can sometimes feel uncomfortable but it feels like that because the word of God is coming up against the world and some type of enmeshed falsehood. There's some right dividing of right and wrong that's happening. And so in a weird way, even if it's uncomfortable and hard to sometimes experience that, it's a beautiful and it's a good thing. It's a sign that Jesus' ministry is alive and active. That's what it feels like for the church to assault the gates of hell, as Jesus says in the Gospels. There are many places, churches, universities, communities um, that you can participate in that will never challenge you and they'll never make anybody feel uncomfortable. And that's so tempting and it's so tempting to me because it's so comfortable. There are never any, any surprises. Uh, this is why a lot of people wish there would be no sermons in church and we would just have communion and music. I get that all the time. Can we not have anybody talk and like say, teach things? But that's actually a sign of false teaching. As your pastor, I need you to know, it's a sign of false teaching. The Bible calls that the tickling of ears. We don't want that. To put it crassly, it's just making demons comfortable. It's allowing switched zeros and ones to remain where they are. 
leaving the virus in the software. But that's not what we want. Amen? No conflict is nice, but not at the cost of deception. What's better than comfort is liberation, is freedom from darkness. So if you're in a season right now that is particularly confusing and you are sifting through a lot in your life between Christianity, between maybe other religions or different types of Christianity or just all kinds of stuff, just things are confusing to you, I want to shepherd you by pointing you towards the teacher with authority. Jesus is the one who has the authority to teach. He can divide what is true and what is false in your life. He has the authority to liberate from any deception. So if you feel tension right now, and if you're in a hard season of trying to figure stuff out, hang in there. Put yourself under the teaching of Jesus. He's such a kind and gracious and loving teacher, and his intention for you is liberation. Hallelujah. To prove this, I want to end with a testimony. We've, uh, we have a friend who's been involved in this church community um, who went through a profound liberation from darkness to light, and much of it centered around her reading of God's word and her process of coming under that really for the first time. And I shot her an email this week as I was uh, studying this, and I asked her this question. How would you describe what it felt like to have undergone that liberation from falsehood to truth? And here's what she said. I'm quoting. Quote, Reading God's word on the heels of unleashing the dark into the light and completely losing all sense of personhood is the most powerful thing I've experienced. I had grown desensitized because of the countless ways I had wrongly justified and reasoned myself further into deception. And slowly, as I read God's word each day, God continued to show me just how evil and disgusting my sin and deception was. It brought me real pain and into deep repentance. It bumped me out of the center of my own life. God's word establishes order because it is order. And as I started to gain an understanding of God's order, I began desiring and seeking his order and not my own. As I did this, I died and will continue to die a thousand tiny deaths to myself. I felt constantly and completely broken and simultaneously soothed, which is why I use the word searing. When I think of searing, it's typically a process that burns while it also seals and cures. I also felt under a flame at times, like a reckless mad burst of darkness was being put to flame, which is painful, and in its place could sprout purity, order, peace, sensitivity. The darkness numbs so much while God's word truly sheds light, breaks chains, and creates soft, fertile soil, which can produce fruit and life. It's beautiful because his word will never break us without putting us back together. And thanks to our merciful and loving Father, it won't be how we were formerly, it will be in the likeness of Christ. Jesus is real, his word is alive, no joke, folks. Unquote. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for that testimony, Lord. We thank you that this isn't just a random story in a book. Jesus, you are breathing in Madison, Wisconsin. You're breathing in Christchurch, Madison. You're breathing this morning. And your breath gives life and makes deception and evil flee. Lord, be our shepherd. We are not strong enough to teach our way out of 21 and into 2020 and into 2021. We're not strong enough, Lord, to fight deception. We're not strong enough to fight evil, but you are. And you have come. So, Lord, we invite your your ministry this morning and this year. We pray that we and so many others in Madison would be able to experience that same beautiful process of coming out of deception and into wholeness and loveliness and peace and order. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.